Previously on Drilled. They believe that oil and coal were put here in the United States by God for us to use. And I don't know how you, that's not a, that's not a scientific argument. That's almost, a, that's a theological argument or, you know, religious, I don't know what you do with that. We know that throughout the 1980s and 1990s, oil companies, manufacturers, and anyone else who might feel threatened by emissions regulations teamed up to fund, conceive, and execute comprehensive social influence campaigns. They targeted the media in various ways, and the culture too. The final prong of that effort was in the institutional sphere, targeting local, state, and federal government, public education, and research being conducted at the country's top universities. When we look at a microcosm of Ohio, we see that the Koch network is at work on the state level and at the county level. Among that set of, of dedicated research centers that are really influential in technology research, in training you know, future people working in climate, also influencing the IPCC, that a majority, I would say a majority of funding in those centers comes from fossil fuel groups. We have the documentation starting in the 50s and 60s about them putting out educational material for grade schools and high schools about the wonders of oil. Every company and every industry lobbies government officials for policies and regulations that are favorable to them. The whole lobbying complex is its own tangled knot for another podcast. But when it comes to climate and energy policy, Influencing regulations goes way beyond garden-variety D.C. lobbying. These influence campaigns aim to manipulate every piece of information around climate science and how people process that information. Environmental sociologist Bob Brule has spent decades digging into these campaigns. He's uncovered which think tanks, nonprofits, and consumer groups are actually funded by fossil fuel interests and how they work together to influence policy. And he is deep in the weeds on this stuff. To get on this graph, the organization had to show up, They could, any, any one of these six areas, they had to show up, any one of 31 climate coalitions, show up at the UN climate meetings, at, show up in the New York Times as a source or being written about. For Brule, it's important to know what you're up against so you can strategize accordingly. His take on how well the environmental movement has done on that front is neatly summed up by the only knickknack in his office. And then over here I have, you see the saint? Yeah. It's St. Jude. What's St. Jude, the patron oh, saint? Oh, lost of? causes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Brule has also spent a considerable amount of time looking at how the fossil fuel industry has tried to control its image over the years. One way is to continuously hammer home the point that fossil fuels are absolutely critical to American progress. That's a message that wasn't just pushed to the media, but also to school children. In his research, Brule has found documentation of the American Petroleum Institute's efforts starting as early as post-World War II era to integrate this message into public school education. We have the documentation starting in the 50s and 60s about them putting out educational material for grade schools and high schools about the wonders of oil and all this stuff. So basically it's a propaganda campaign it's not to attack climate change. They don't even have to use the words climate change. What they're doing is they're seeding in the unconscious the idea that fossil fuels equals progress and good life. In addition to outspending environmental groups 10 to 1, 
the various companies and organizations seeking to stop any sort of action on climate change have also been working hard to slow the adoption of renewable energy, despite the booming solar and wind markets. They do so both by influencing government officials at the state and local level, and by focusing U.S. research efforts on far-off experimental technologies rather than those that could be implemented in the near future. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every morning. I take it before I start my day, even before I have coffee. I gave it a try because I felt like my immune system was kind of shot and I had low energy in general. And it has really helped me feel like I am getting all of the nutrition I need. It makes me feel focused in the morning and energized and just ready to take on the day. And no wonder I feel so good. It's got 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients to improve gut health, mood, to boost energy. It's even making my skin look better. I've never been very good at taking supplements or vitamins, things like that. But AG1 makes it super easy. I just make a smoothie with it in the morning. And if I don't have time to do that, I just throw a scoop of powder and water and that's it. AG1 was designed with ease in mind so you can live a healthier and better life without having to do very much. It's my kind of product. I also love the single serving travel packs because when I'm away from home, it makes it easy to keep up with a routine keep my nutrition up, and stay healthy. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com drilled. That's athleticgreens.com drilled. Check it out. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Peterson has been running a years-long investigation into the Koch brothers' network of influence, particularly as it pertains to renewable energy. He's recently been focused on Ohio, where State Senator Bill Seitz, whose campaigns have been funded by the Kochs since about 2012, has been the state's primary blocker to wind energy. But even at the county level, Peterson found the influence of fossil fuel interests. 
So there's, there's a wind project in Ohio, in Seneca County. Um, there's a couple of them ongoing. And what we found is that the chairman of the Seneca County Board of Supervisors flipped. He was for wind, and then suddenly he flipped against it. And what we found was that he was, in about a three-month period, bombarded with a guy who was sending him material from coke-based front groups. I mean, they were from all around the United States. There were even some from Canada. So this poor county chairman, maybe somewhat unsophisticated in the world of energy, suddenly was bombarded by this local activist. So when we, when we look at a microcosm of Ohio, we see that the coke network is at work on the state level and at the county level. If you unravel how policy gets made, eventually you get all the way back to academic research on everything from the economics of bracing carbon to climate modeling to renewable energy technology. And these days, fossil fuel interests have a huge amount of influence over what gets researched and how. Ben Franta, a JD-PhD candidate at Stanford Law School and the Stanford Department of History, first began digging into the influence of fossil fuel interests on climate research when he was a student at Harvard. His first clue came when he joined the movement to encourage the campus to divest from fossil fuels. I was involved with helping to organize the, the fossil fuel divestment movement at Harvard, and you know, we would go to faculty and we would try to solicit their support. And we noticed something kind of interesting, which was that most faculty were either neutral or they would support it. But the faculty that actually were opposed to it actively and would write about it in the press, I would say more often than not, in fact, almost all of the time, these faculty were funded by fossil fuel groups. Then one of the research directors at the Kennedy School of Government, where Franta was working, called the researchers in and asked them not to answer any questions about funding. We were called in for a staff meeting and our research director told us, you know, there's a lot of activists and journalists snooping around and trying to inquire about our, our funding and funding from the oil industry. And he said, if anybody talks to you, don't tell them anything, you know, don't talk to them <laughs> and send them to me instead. For an academic institution to actually tell its researchers, don't tell other people where your funding comes from. That experience prompted Ranta to begin digging into what exactly oil companies were funding at university campuses and how much influence that funding brought them. He has since partnered with Jeffrey Supran at Harvard, and what they've found it's pretty shocking. What we found was that a clear majority of the sponsorships themselves come from fossil fuel groups. And the biggest sponsorships, there's a few that are, are huge compared to the rest, and they also come from fossil fuel groups, usually the fossil fuel producers themselves. And so we can infer quite confidently that among that set of, of dedicated research centers that are really influential, in technology research, in training, you know, future people working in climate, also influencing the IPCC, that a majority, I would say a majority of funding in those centers comes from 
fossil fuel groups. We're not talking about little-known universities tucked away in the heart of coal country, either. Where the industry is concerned, the more prestigious the university, the better, with research centers at Stanford, MIT, Harvard, and more. The MIT Energy Initiative, you know, probably the flagship energy research entity at MIT, and that's very, very heavily uh, majority funded by fossil fuel groups. Very similar situation here at Stanford, where the the major climate energy research center here is called GCEP, G-C-E-P, Global Climate and Energy Project. Again, that center is majority funded by fossil fuel interests. And again, the funders do have influence built into the structure of how research projects are chosen. In an article Supran and Vranta co-authored in The Guardian last year, they tell the story of something both say happens all the time at these centers. In this particular story, the Harvard Kennedy School screened a documentary billed as a, quote, balanced discussion about today's energy issues. Supran and Vranta write, who can argue with balance and rationality? And with Harvard's stamp of approval, surely the information presented to students and the public would be credible and reliable, right? Wrong. They then go on to debunk most of the, quote, solutions suggested in the documentary and explain that the doc was funded by Shell, which has also given $3.75 million to the Harvard Kennedy School. The events panel included an executive vice president from Shell, and the documentary included various experts identified only by their academic credentials and not their various industry ties. These sorts of things happen often and systemically, and it's hard not to think that has something to do with the funding these centers receive from the industry. Funding from Shell, Chevron, BP, and other oil and gas companies dominates Harvard's energy and climate policy research, and Harvard research directors consult for the industry. Down the street at MIT, the five founding members of the MIT Energy Initiative are all commercial fossil fuel producers. ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Aramco, and Eni, the Italian oil company. Across the country, at Stanford, ExxonMobil contributed $100 million of the $200 million in startup funding for the Global Climate and Energy Project, or GSEP, and has continued to contribute more funds since the center's founding in 2002. In their Guardian article, Franta and Supran write, To say that these experts and research centers have conflicts of interest is an understatement. Many of them exist as they do only because of the fossil fuel industry. They are industry projects with the appearance of neutrality and credibility given by academia. At GSEP, representatives from each funding corporation form a management committee that is formally involved in selecting research projects and has final say over project funding. The benefits of these research initiatives are multifaceted. They shape the public's understanding of climate science and fossil fuels and influence the science on which any future regulation or policy will be based. When you can successfully fund researchers of your choosing, then you get a whole host of benefits in return. It's a very, it's a very kind of like multidimensional kickback process. So, I mean, for one, you, you shape the scientific discourse because it might be true that that researcher you're funding would have done that research anyway, but they probably wouldn't have done as much of it because they mm-hmm. wouldn't have had the same resources. Their voice wouldn't be as prominent because with that funding, they gain prominence. They can head up their own research center at a university. When they head up their own research center, they can you know, multiply their output vastly. And they also have opportunities to be hired at 
at more prestigious institutions. And ideally, from the industry standpoint, I, the ideal situation is you have industry-friendly researchers who are funded by the industry, who are heading up industry-funded research centers at the most prestigious universities in the United States. These efforts have been widespread, well-funded, and extremely effective. It's not an overstatement to say we're farther away from tackling climate change now than we were 30 years ago. And those weren't just any 30 years. Those specific years were critical to stopping warming at a livable level. Had there been a systemic shift toward lower emissions and renewable energy, lives would have been saved. And while the industry often frames it as a question of life and death for a major part of the economy, it's just not. In one hand, you have the earnings reports of a few companies. And in the other, you have the viability of the human race on this planet. And yet somehow, a small and powerful group of men were able to convince an entire nation what they knew themselves was not true. That climate change was uncertain, and that until we knew more, we should not act. They were so successful, in fact, that they've now landed in court with cities, counties, states, and various groups of people suing Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP, and more for damages. In the next episode, we'll look at why that happened and what it might accomplish. Next time on Drilled. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, this really was done to the public. This really was done to the, to the world at large. And this science was disputed when, in fact, the issues were, to a large degree, resolved. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Reporting for this series was done by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Our executive producer is Richard Wiles. Our story and concept consultant was Reka Murthy. Our cover art was designed by Lucas Lisakowski. You can find Drilled wherever you listen to podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find new listeners. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.